Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in uh, for the past several months through the book of Exodus. Um, You know, Exodus, there's the big story of Exodus, what you think of when you think of, uh, you know, the movies, when you think of Charlton Heston or Prince of Egypt, you know, there's the story of God uh, bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, uh, the plagues, all of it. But uh, in actually reading Exodus, you're through all of that stuff uh, within about the first half of the book. Uh, so you go, you get to about this point, and you go, well, what's the, what's the rest of this book going to be about? And what you realize as you read Exodus is it's got two parts. Part is the story of God's rescue. And then the second half are instructions for his people's worship. That the story of the Exodus is about more than just the rescue. It's about rescue for a purpose, right? That it's about God redeeming his people, not just so they could be free, but so that they could be free to worship him. And friends, this is important for us because the Christian life is much the same. It's not just about what Jesus has done to save us. It's not just about our rescue, but it's about the so what, right? Rescued for what purpose? Well, rescued to live a life of worship. Rescued to live a life wholly dedicated to the one who's dedicated his whole self to us to set us free. And so uh, in Exodus, we saw last week, several chapters of the description of the holy place uh, that was meant to be a little bit of heaven on earth for God's people, the tabernacle. And then this morning, we're going to look at his instructions for the holy people who are meant to lead that worship, uh, the priests of Israel. And so, uh, if you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? It's our habit here to stand when we read the scriptures uh, as a way of symbolizing that we are ready to listen and we're ready to put into practice what we hear. Exodus 28, starting in verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and a fine twined linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two, le- two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. 
six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear the names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, when the book of Exodus ends, uh, and I don't want to step on that sermon because Lord willing, we will reach the end of the book of Exodus one of these days. There's this scene where the temple, the, the tabernacle that God has instructed Moses to build is built. The tent is there and it's set up with the outer courtyard and the holy place and there in the center, the holy of holies. The place where God would dwell with his people, where God would sit on top of his mercy seat. And uh, as he said would happen, the spirit of God, the very presence of God descends on the tabernacle. In smoke and fire, he comes and he lives right there with his people. He makes his home with them so that they can dwell with him and he can dwell with them. And then Moses, uh, the man of God, this uh, hero through so much of the book of Exodus, is told by God in that moment, you can't come in here. Right now, if I'm Moses, if I'm the one who's uh, obeyed God, who heard his voice from the bush, who went into Egypt, who led my people out, who God, we're told up to this point, has met with face to face as a man meets with a friend. And now the, the spirit of God, the presence of God comes down and God says, no, no, no. Not for you. You can't come in here. Only the priests can come in here. To make maybe it a little bit harder to bear, only your brother and his kids can come in here. All your nephews, they can come in. But you have to stay on the outside. This is for the priests. Only a, set, uh, a select few could be set apart from this work. It, it required absolute dedication, absolute holiness. Verse 36, we're, we're really covering a couple of chapters here. We're just going to read uh, a few verses. But verse 36 of 28, is, uh, the author continues to expand on this, uh, the dress that Aaron and his children, the priests, were to wear. Verse 36, you shall make a plate of pure gold. And engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on his turban by a cord of blue. And it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. The priests would wear a gold medallion on the top of their head that said, holy to Yahweh, holy to the Lord. That the priests were to be these men of absolute and total sanctification. Commitment uh, to go and dwell in the Lord's presence. The truth is 99.99% of the Israelites never went into the holy place. Never went into the holy of holies. Most of them, those Israelites, live normal lives like you and me. Different, of course, uh, in many ways, but lives marked by work and battle and farming and families, life and death in their own cities and towns and villages. 
Normal lives, not all that different from our own, including their own sin, right? They knew as well as we do how far short they fall every single day of living up to what God had called them to, this life of dedication to him. And so they had the priests who were set aside for the very special work of living and worshiping in the Holy of Holies. You know, at first, this seems to confirm a deep suspicion that most of us have, right? Which is that dwelling with God, being in communion with God, that's for some other kind of people than me, right? That's for somebody that's far holier, far more righteous, far more dedicated, far less sinful, There's two kinds of people in this world. There's the everyday folks like us, and then there's the elite. There's the saints. There's the ones who God listens to their prayers, and God welcomes their presence. We have this sense uh, that we somehow don't merit God's concern, that we're not welcome uh, into his presence. You know, I see this all the time as a pastor uh, when my neighbors and my non-Christian friends ask me if I will pray for them. Uh, Now, of course, I am 100% uh, overjoyed to pray for them and to pray for you, to pray for anyone who asks for my prayers. But there's this assumption that still lives in us, even though our culture, as we've largely moved on, is is a kind of a post-Christian world. There's this notion that pastors somehow have the inside track on God's ear, right? That That if a normal person prays, God might hear, but if I can get my pastor neighbor to pray, then God's really going to hear. They assume that the pastor is somehow more holy and more righteous. Try not to roll your eyes too hard uh, for those of you who know me. Right, but we have this assumption that God listens to some people's prayers better than ours, that we, there's an inside and there's an outside of God's presence and that somehow by our sin, by our weakness, by our stories, by our lives, that we find ourselves on the outside. And if we can just get somebody on the inside to hold our concerns, this is why millions and millions of Christians around the world pray to saints or ask Mary to pray for them. Because we have this feeling that somebody has to come between the normal folks like us and the holiness of a holy God. In the Old Testament, priesthood on the one hand seems to affirm this at first. The 99.9% are on the outside and the 0.01% are there wholly on the inside. But when you understand the priesthood, we understand, we have to come to understand that the way that it works is that the few go into the presence of God for the many. Right? The priests don't go in for their own sake, they go in for the people's sake. They go in not just so they can enjoy kind of an insider status with God, But what do we learn about Aaron in this story? Did you hear the the bit where he has two stones that have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel? The 12 names of all of the different people of Israel and he bears them on his heart as he goes into the presence of God. As he goes into worship, he goes in as them and for them. So that the people of Israel, as they went about their normal everyday lives, their raising families and making food and farming their fields kind of lives, they could know that somewhere, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple, there was someone bearing their name before God. That there was a holy person doing the holy work of making sure that their lives stayed before the face of God. So that God saw them and was attentive to their everyday needs with their names written on his heart. 
When we understand this, we come to see that we need a priest. We need a priest. We need somebody as we go about the ordinary stuff of our lives that we can know brings us before the glory of God, who brings us before the face of God and assures God that we are one, that we are with him and we are in him. Here's what a priest did. A priest in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, was one who mediated, who came between and represented God to the people and the people to God in their person and in their work. In their person, who they were, and in their work, what they did. First, let's look at the person of the priest. We just read the first 12 verses of what's a multi-chapter description of what the priests wore when they went to work every day. And it was some fancy clothes, right? In a world where most of the people could barely afford to wear a tunic and some sandals, these priests were dressed in gold and purple and scarlet. They were dressed in such a way that they represented heaven itself. The stuff that made up their clothes, if you remember from our look at the tabernacle last week, the stuff that made up their clothes was the same stuff that made up the tabernacle itself. Uh, these jeweled garments, these, uh, this jewelry and the gold and the, the many colors, that they were supposed to be normal human beings dressed like heaven itself. While they were normal, everyday men, when they got dressed to go into the holy place, they were a bridge between heaven and earth. Normal, everyday people, but dressed in such a way that they were ready, that they fit within this design of God's little outpost of heaven on earth, dressed uh, in gold and blue and purple and scarlet. This meeting place, this representation between heaven and earth. We're told that they were dressed, I love that little phrase, dressed for glory and for beauty. That they were meant to reflect something of God's glory and God's beauty, even though they were normal, everyday folks. In fact, all of chapter 29 is set aside to deal with the fact that these men were ordinary sinful men. That these were not uh, more holy in and of themselves. There was this elaborate uh, bit of sacrifice that had to be done for them and for their sin so that they could then go in and make sacrifice for the people's sin. So there's this entire chapter about the special sacrifices that were needed just so Aaron and his sons could go into the holy place. And so in their person, in the way that they were set apart by sacrifice, in the way that they were dressed in this ornate beauty and glory, in their person themselves, they represented God to the people and the people to God. You know, it's true that the priests of Israel never quite measured up to the clothes that they wore, right? That the, the, the beauty and glory that they draped themselves in, uh, they never quite measured up to it, right? They were at times sinful and doubting like the rest of us. There were times where the priesthood of Israel actually became very corrupt to where the prophets, uh, you know, said, you claim to be representing God, but you're doing it poorly, Right there, so there's always a difference. There was always a gap between the clothes that they wore and the actual person inside the clothes. I remember as a little kid getting into my dad's closet and putting on his suits. Do you ever, do you ever do that? Trying on his shoes and you kind of waddle around and fall down like you're wearing clown shoes because you don't quite measure up to the outfit that you're wearing. And that's what the priests were largely like. 
They largely had an idea. I imagine if I was a priest getting dressed every day to go into the temple, I would feel like, man, as weak and as sinful and as doubting as I know myself to be, to put on all of this so that I represent something above and beyond myself. I represent an office more than just a particular person. It would be overwhelming. So that's the person of the priest, that in and of them, very, their very selves, they represent this union between God and his people. But then their work, over and over again, the work of the priests in chapter 28, there's this phrase that repeats itself, that Aaron was to bear the people. Uh, sometimes it says he was going to bear their names on his heart. Sometimes he bears uh, their sin on his forehead. He bears their ju the judgment of God on his back. That he bears the people. He carries the people as he goes into the holy place so that when he goes in, it's like the people will go in with him. But what did a priest do day to day? What was the everyday work of a priest like? You know, it's very different. Uh, it may not shock you to the contemporary work of a pastor. To put it in, uh, in terms we might understand, the priest's day-to-day -day life, his day-to-day -day job is nine to five was something like a blend of what we would call a social worker and a butcher. A social worker. Uh, the priests, it was part of their job to distribute gifts to the poor and the vulnerable. So part of God's plan for caring for his people was that those who found themselves hungry, those who found themselves widowed or orphaned, would have someone making provision for them. And in the, in the Old Testament, that person's job, was it was the priest's job to do that to take the offerings of the people that came into the temple and to distribute those gifts to the poor. That's one of the reasons why, if you remember Jesus' story, the one we know is the story of the Good Samaritan, when a priest and a Levite passed the man in the ditch on the other side, the reason that was a scandal to his hearers was that was their job. Their job was to care for the wounded and the sick and the hurting. It's one of the reasons, if you read the Gospels, when Jesus heals the lepers, he says, go show yourselves to the priests. Because the priests, uh, part of their job was kind of like a public health inspector. To, so that they would go before the people, they, they'd look at this man who used to be a leper, they'd say, okay, your leprosy's clear, you can go back to live with the people. So they had this social function uh, within the life of Israel, and they were also somewhat like a butcher. The day-to-day -day life of a priest uh, was a bloody, bloody life. It was a life of constantly making sacrifices before God taking the gifts of the people, uh, their animals, their livestock, those gifts that they brought into the temple or the tabernacle to say thank you to God, to say every bit of my life belongs to you, to ask for God's mercy. And they would take them and they'd sacrifice them and they'd take the blood and they'd take it into the altar to bring it before the face of God and they'd burn what was left. To be a priest... Uh, was a tiring, exhausting, constant, and bloody work. They would do this in order that they would be able to offer God's blessing to his people. We end our services very often with the priestly blessing of the Old Testament when I hold my hands up, remember that part at the end, and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you and give you peace. That when Aaron and his sons, when the priests, they would do that. They would hold up their hands to bless. But their hands would be blood-stained hands. Their hands would bear the marks of the sacrifice because that's what it cost for God's people to receive his blessing.
that their sin had to be taken care of, it had to be paid for, in order that God's face wouldn't scowl in judgment, but beam in pleasure, shining over his people. So in their person and in their work, they mediate, they serve as a kind of a bridge between God and his people, representing the people before God, he bears the people, and representing God to the people in blessing and in generosity to the hurting. And so Israel, most of them went about their normal everyday lives knowing that their sin was being dealt with, knowing that the priest was in his temple, that Aaron was carrying, bearing their names and the names of their children, bearing their judgment before God. To be a priest was a high and holy calling. And we need, each of us, this priestly work in our own lives. We need to know that our sin is being dealt with. We need to know that we uh, have a place in the Father's presence. We need to know that we can go to our Father anytime, day or night, and offer Him our prayers because our sin has been dealt with once and for all. There's this, uh, I want to draw our attention, there's this little uh, line in the book of Acts that you can almost miss the first time you read it. You know, Acts is that great story of the, of the early church. The story of Jesus continuing his work from Jerusalem and then around uh, to the ends of the earth. And it comes in Acts chapter 6. You know, the first chapters of Acts are filled with this beautiful story. The story of people uh, from every uh, language and tribe coming together at Pentecost to hear the gospel preached. We're told that this early group of Christians started living their lives in each other's homes, breaking bread, worshiping God together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, all they'd heard from the apostles. We're told that they gave their lives to one another so freely that, that there were no poor among them. Not because nobody there was poor, but that if somebody had need, the others sold and gave and they shared everything together. It was this fellowship of, of humanity across uh, class and culture and race, linguistic grouping, nation, Jews and Gentiles beginning to come together, the poor being taken care of. We'll, we'll talk about this sometime in our church, is saying that the church is meant to be an uncommon family, right? People who are very different from, from each other, people who from the world's way of looking at it should have nothing to do with each other. But coming together is an unusual family in Christ. And so all that's happening in these first chapters. And then we get to chapter 6. Probably the most important thing that happens in chapter 6 is that the diaconate is set up. The deacons, the apostles look at all these uh, people in need, the widows and the orphans and the poor, and they say, you know what, it's, it's costing us too much. We're, we're being distracted from preaching and going about the work uh, of prayer and ministry that we've been given. Let's set up some others who are going to take care of this. And we have the first deacons put in place to care for the needy. And then chapter 6, verse 7, this is the part I want us to look at. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Just a little line, and the story moves on. A great number of the priests were converted. Why does, why does Luke, the author of Acts, draw our attention to that one fact? But of these converts who came from every little strata of society there was, that many of the priests were converted. That there was this movement, there was a revival 
among the priests converting. I think in the context, there's two things that are happening. I think the first is that the priests are looking at the church and saying, there's an entire community of people who are acting like priests. The work that we give our lives to do, here's a group of normal people with day jobs who are now taking care of the poor and are giving their lives to one another, who are devoted to worship in the same way that we're called to do. And so they saw this movement of priesthood breaking out of the the priesthood. You know, ever since Exodus 19, there was the promise. God told Moses that Israel was actually meant to be a kingdom of priests, right? Not just a priest within the people, but they were supposed to be priests in the world. Just as the priests represented God to them, they were supposed to represent God to their neighbors, God to the world, and the world before God in prayer. And so I think the priests are looking at the church and going, oh, it's happening. That thing that we were promised would happen, that all people, men, women, and children, would come to be priests before God and in the world. That that movement was starting to happen. And they said, we want to be a part of that. The New Testament draws on this language a ton. Both Paul, Peter, and John, all of them use this language of saying that the church was becoming a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, an entire church full of priests. This is what Martin Luther celebrated at the Protestant Reformation and the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Right, This notion that you don't need a special priest to come between you and God. You don't need to confess to a priest. You can confess straight to God. You don't have to ask a priest to pray for you. You can pray to God. You don't have to ask a priest to represent God's concerns in the world. You can represent those concerns in the world, the priesthood of every single last one of us. So I think that's one of the things that led the priest to this wave of conversion. But I think another thing that motivated them is another theme that we see in the New Testament, which is I think they looked, I think if you were a priest, you would have felt every day that your job can't be the final answer for this problem. Right? I think you would have known every day when you got dressed up so nice to go into the work that you were a sinful, ordinary human being yourself that there had to be a better priest to do this kind of work, right? I think you would have felt as you sacrificed animal after animal after animal, day after day, week after week, year after year, I think you, as you struggled to keep up the sacrifices, to keep up with the rate at which people sinned, that you would have felt there has to be a better answer to dealing with sin than this. There has to be some way other than just sacrificing every little goat and sheep and lamb that we have to make an atonement for human human sin. The letter to the Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 8, verse 5 of these priests. That the priests serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And I think if you were a priest, you would have known that you would have felt that this has to be the shadow of something greater. This has to be a sign pointing towards some kind of ultimate substance. The book of Hebrews goes on, Hebrews chapter 9. A huge chunk of the book of Hebrews is dedicated to explaining this priestly office of Jesus. We're just going to read just a little section here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that's the tabernacle and the temple, to be purified with these rites and sacrifices. But the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, 
not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest uh, enters uh, the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hear what it says, just as the priest made sacrifice after sacrifice, day after day, Christ offered up a better sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own life, perfect, spotless, without blemish, offered up once for all to God so that we could know once and for all that the price has been paid, that our sin has been dealt with, and that we are there before the face of God. Christ bears our names, not written externally to himself on his chest, but written on his, on his heart, engraved on his hands, before the presence of the Father. He brings us into his presence. We need a priest. We need to know, as Paul said, that our lives, what matters most to us, what matters most about us, is hidden with Christ in God, that we dwell with him there. We need to know that when we feel far from God, right, do you ever feel far from God? Do you ever feel like when you throw your prayers up that they don't uh, escape the roof? Uh, do you ever feel like when you wake up and you go to read your Bible, you get distracted and you, you drift off? Do you ever feel like the anxiety and depression and despair of this life uh, almost holds you back before you can even pray. And so we feel sometimes like the gap between us and God is a million miles wide. And friends, sometimes those feelings are as real as anything. Sometimes we feel so far from him. But because Christ is our priest, you know that you are never far from God. That your closeness to God has nothing to do with how you feel. It has nothing to do with the strength of your faith on any given day. It has nothing to do with your anxieties, your concerns, your despair. That Christ brings you into the holy of holies. That your name is written on him and he's there with you. That in spite of our doubts, in spite of our sins, you are one with the Father through the sacrifice of Christ. I love these words in Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Those little words, you do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. Right? Every struggle of our lives, our struggles with temptation, our struggles with belief, our struggles with despair and loneliness, Jesus knows every single one of those. Do you ever feel alone, forsaken by others? You remind Jesus of what he felt in Gethsemane. 
when his closest friends fell asleep and betrayed him? Do you ever feel tired? Do you ever feel tested and so tempted that it feels like you can do nothing to withstand the pull of temptation? You remind Jesus of those 40 days that he spent in the wilderness where he was so hungry and thirsty that he couldn't bear it. Do you ever feel pain and anguish? Do you ever wonder the Father's nearness? You remind Jesus of the cross and everything that he felt there on our behalf. He can sympathize with us. He knows what we feel. You have not felt a single thing this week that Jesus hasn't gone before you, feeling in his own bones and bearing before the Father. Take comfort, friends. You have a great high priest. Will Willimon is a professor in the Divinity School at Duke University, Methodist, priest, or Methodist pastor. He tells a story of visiting a woman who was dying in the hospital. He wasn't her pastor, but he was visiting her. She was in the last stages of lung cancer, fighting every single day for her breath, moment after moment. She was in terrible pain. If you've ever been around someone dying of cancer, you know the feeling and the look, the exhaustion. And he says that she clutched to her chest every day, all day, a crucifix. Uh, she was born in Eastern Europe and had been given as a child a crucifix that had been carved by a monk. Uh, and she carried that with her everywhere she went. And on her deathbed, she clung it to her heart. It reminded her of her faith. It reminded her of all that she'd inherited from her parents and her church. Willimon says when he entered the room that afternoon, he could see that she was very near the end, and he asked, would you like me to pray for you? Seeing her confusion, he asked, would you like me to summon a real priest for you? But with her last ounce of energy, she held out the crucifix, and she said, thank you, but I have a priest. I have a priest. I have one who bears me before the Father, and I'm never apart from him. I have one who can sympathize with my struggles in living and in dying. I have one who can calm my troubled heart. I have one who can apply balm to my wounded soul. I have a priest already. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we do, in fact, have a great high priest. That we have one who's gone before us, who's suffered and been tempted in every way. Lord, you know the sorrows of our lives. You know the struggles that we carry. Lord, sometimes they do feel too much for us to bear. But Lord, we thank you that they are never once for a moment too much for you to bear. That you, in fact, as Aaron bore the names of Israel before the Father, that you bear us before God day after day. And that one day, Lord, we have this assurance that we will see you and you will welcome us into the Father's very presence. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.